Welcome to the EQ Podcast. Welcome to the EQ Podcast, a show focused on equipping ministry leaders within the Calvary Chapel Association in the Pacific Northwest. I'm your host, Zach Lamerson, and I'm excited to be able to interview some of the guest speakers we've had at our annual ministry, ministry conference here in Kennewick. Uh, over the last few weeks, you know, we've had a, a number of different guests on, and, and you know, having them in studio is always a pleasure rather than having a Zoom call. And so today, I'm, I'm really excited to hang out with Pastor Lloyd Pulley of Calvary Chapel Old Bridge in New Jersey. And uh, just real blessing to have you on. Hey, uh, it's a blessing being here. And uh, man, the conference, this is the best kept secret. What an amazing conference. Great fellowship, a uh, lot of camaraderie, community, word of God, powerful. Yeah, we appreciate you coming all the way over from New Jersey. You know, Lloyd, why don't you give us a, a quick biography, kind of, you know, how you got saved, how you got into ministry. I know you've been in New Jersey for a number of years now, and God's doing a great thing there. But, you know, your roots are from, you know, California, right? From- well, originally Michigan. I grew up in Michigan, went to Michigan State. Um, I became a Christian, really. I mean, I grew up in the church. My grandmother raised me. Uh, so w- when I went into the university, that's when I really had to get down to what am I going to be? Who am I going to be? And I had a crisis time. Called in the name of the Lord, um, influenced by a guy in the wrestling team, and that started a trajectory already of ministry. So I was really trying to f- finish my education, and but man, I just wanted people to know about the Lord. My sister told me about a church out in California that trained people in the ministry, and that stuck in the back of my mind. So during an England trip, I got a call to leave the university, go out to Southern California, Calvary Chapel was the thing. And so in 1978, I found myself out in Southern California, was there for uh, up until 84 when we moved out here. I had a unique opportunity after attending the church for a year. At 21, Raul Reese um, asked me to uh, consider coming on staff as an intern. So I came on as a grunt and just serving. And, you know, uh, five years later, I went up to New Jersey. So what, what was the call out to New Jersey? What did that look like? Well, originally, I'll be honest, I, the year before, I was really determined to go back to my hometown and in, in Michigan, in Jackson, Michigan. And it seemed like after a while, I felt I was pushing and striving. And you know, when the Lord's not in it, it's just not in it. You could feel it. So I just yeah. let it die. And I go, okay, Lord, whatever you have. And one thing led to another where I'd meet people from New Jersey. We'd take counseling calls from people because my pastor was on the radio out in New Jersey and New Jersey just kept, just, I, 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 I was convinced that this is it. I told Rawl, I said, I feel like I want to go out to New Jersey. And so, you know, within about six months, uh, June of 84, we went out there. I, I made some contact with one other couple that would write in about Rawl in the station. So he was very interested in helping get started. Uh, he got me connected with a drywall union because I was a drywall taper before I went into ministry. And so okay. I was able to provide for myself and... It took my by then my wife and I had been married. We had two little kids in tow, so we took them away from the grandparents, which I was so callous because I didn't understand what that meant. Now as a grandparent, yeah, yeah. Like, I would kill him. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that was uh, that was a great great venture. And so you moved away in ex- expectation that you were going to have to work. How long did you end up working before you eventually came on staff? You know, as the pastor there. You know, it was uh, it seemed like a long time, but I would say only a year. 
Then I started um, taking just part-time things because I couldn't do both. And then eventually I couldn't do both at all because the church was really growing. Mm-hmm. By September of, you know, like one year later, we already had about 75 people. It uh, wasn't enough to support me. So I think for another six months, I was doing part-time. So about a year and a half, then I went full-time. Okay, well, that's pretty quick. That's, yeah, that's it, fantastic. It, it seems slow. As I look <laughs> back, time, yeah. it was actually quick. You're right. It was quick. And then then we hit a growth spurt where it just, it's like certain things just took off. And um, we were just blown away what God was doing. Do you think that's because there's a vacuum in that area of like solid Bible teaching churches? One of the reasons we started, originally I was going to visit churches when we went out there, just get a feel of the land. And after visiting three churches, I'm like, oh, Lord, these weren't, they weren't nothing in the scriptures. It was just really either uh, hyper-Kentecostal or not much teaching and um, preaching, but not teaching. So I just felt like, well, let's just start a Sunday morning in our apartment, which is what we did. We had an interesting apartment. We had a basement that could do children's ministry. And then we had, eventually we had about 75 people coming there. Then we finally got a school and then that's when we started to grow. That's fantastic. So you'd mentioned in your uh, sermon last night, you've seen the Jesus revolution. That's one of the topics we've been discussing on the show, just because it's fresh. And for me, you know, I'm, I'm third generation Calvary. You know, my pastor got saved under Greg Laurie and for me, like it was oddly nostalgic is how I describe it to people. Even though I wasn't there, I've heard these stories. Is that how you felt? Well, you know, we we did see, I mean, even with Raul Reese, you know, who was first generation of the guys to come out from Costa Mesa, they, you know, it was uncanny, the work of God. People would argue that, oh, he was just a, you know, a good, very charismatic guy and people come forward to an altar call, but where are their lives? Well, I did the follow-up for the new believers. Yeah. And I can attest the genuine conversions that lives were changed, I mean, radically. It would be an odd weekend if we didn't see at least 20 or 30 people come forward at each service. So we're talking 60 to 70 people every week. Wow. Responding to the gospel, doing followed up on. And yeah, every now and then there'd be a few that would be in motion. But for the most part, it was like following up with people that was genuine. They'd be part of the church. And we exploded. When I came on staff, I think there was about five, 600 people on. And and by the time I left, there was about four or five thousand in, the, in wow. those four extra four or five years. Yeah, that's explosive growth. <laughs> it really it was it, and and I was doing like street evangelism. I'd go out to Hollywood Boulevard and share the gospel. I, it's one of the stories I tell people about commitment. I said, wherever you go, I was told get committed somewhere. So I got committed to doing street evangelism, even though it was my weakest. I wasn't a street evangelist. I was very more of a teacher. But it was a need. Guy, you know, stopped doing it, and he looking for another leader. So I stepped in, and every Saturday afternoon, I'd be like, "Oh, I don't feel like going out there Saturday night." I'd be like, "What else? Could I, you know, who can I call?" And I'd drag myself in there, complaining all the way. But when I'd get there, God would do something so amazing. On the way home, I'd be like, "Lord, thank you for letting me forgive me for having such a bad attitude." And but every Saturday afternoon, the same thing would happen. Oh, I don't feel like going. And the only thing that got me there was the commitment I made. Yeah, that's. I think that's refreshing because I think a lot of pastors. I feel like this, especially you know, our gift is teaching, 
Yes. And to do evangelism feels like, well, that's not really my gift. It wasn't my gift, but man, when I see God move, because when I got out of my comfort zone, see, that's what I would encourage every believer, whether it's your gift or not, get out of your comfort zone. You know, just at least try something to see what God might do. What were your takeaways from that movie as far as, you know, just kind of seeing the work that God was doing during that time and, you know, just... You know, I know it made a huge impression. You said that you it was very you know emotional. Even it's like I I definitely um, I ca- I cried like eight times through that movie <laughs> because I know I know Greg and I know the situation. I know some of the people and I and just my part of my tears were I remember that feeling of liquid love when you come in and there was a sense of God's presence. There's nothing other like you can't you can't describe that other than. God is here. It's like the first time I went into West Covina with Raul Reese. It was like, I was home. I mean, I'm home. It's like, all I could think of is, this is my home. Yeah. I knew it. And that's how it was for a lot of people. And so it was very, very quick. And if you were, in those days, if you were saved for a couple of weeks, you're already evangelizing. You're already telling others. And nobody, nobody knows more non-believers than brand new believers. Yeah. And they were mobilized and it was like a shockwave of people coming. And plus, with all the, the craziness of the times, um, people were looking for something. But, but the Jesus Revolution movie that you see, it's representing more of Calvary Chapel thing. And really, Calvary Chapel through Greg Laurie's eyes, which was very powerful. But there was Mike McIntosh and Raul Reese and you know, Don McClure. You had so many others that were, God was using. Uh, Jeff Johnson, Steve Mays. Uh, the Harvest book covers a lot of that, which is really yeah. good. Um, and also the old book, Reproducers, which is another that gives you a feel. But that, that was a tiny part of the Jesus Revolution, too. There were so many other ministries. Like, you know, I understand uh, Don McClure probably gave you a list of about 100. I mean, it's, he had a whole list when I was talking to him. I'm like, man, you remember this very well. I was more myopic because I was involved with Campus Crusade, but I didn't know where a lot of their thrust got, came from because by the time I got there, they, they'd already been impacted by the Jesus Revolution. Mm-hmm. And of course, Billy Graham as well, and a lot of ministries. I mean, my goodness. But the sticking point for Calvary was Chuck was tired of church programs and trying to program. And he didn't look at like anybody to try to capitalize and get the momentum, and he didn't think like a marketer. He just wanted to deepen these people in the Word of God. And that's why there's thousands of Calvary chapels. There, we're, we're all teaching through the scriptures. We were impacted by that tremendously. And that's what made Calvary Chapel stick. It was the Word of God. You know, that's interesting you bring that up because I, I do know there's kind of a sense in you know, my gen- my generation of Calvary's like the third, even some of the second generations that, you know, teach, you know, and, you know, teaching through the word of God verse by verse, it's, you know, I've always described Calvary Chapel as kind of like McDonald's. No matter where you go, you kind of get the same food. I've been to McDonald's all over the world. It's the yep. same. It's, yep. That's why I appreciate about Calvary Chapels. But a lot of people don't know, like Chuck taught very topically on Sunday mornings. And, you know, he taught, you know, uh, would take the passages that he's teaching through the Bible of the night services and kind of use those as a launch board on Sunday mornings to teach a little bit different yeah. stylistically, I guess, than a lot of Calvary guys would consider. Do you, you know what I'm saying? Well, it, it wasn't like a typical Baptist topical or, you know, other church topical where you're in Isaiah this week, you're in Revelation this week, you're in John this week. There was still a continuity. Mm-hmm. You know, like you say, he was going through the scriptures 
about 10 chapters uh, at a time going through the scriptures on a Sunday night, and he would pick his text in that portion. So it was topical, but it was also a flow. There was still a flow that you'd get from going through the scriptures even on the Sunday morning. But let me tell you something. During that time, people didn't think of one day a week going to church. Yeah. I mean, it was like you you didn't want to miss anything. You were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You were there for some concert they would do. And I mean, it was like for me, even on staff, it was four nights a week. Something was going on that I was involved in. Um, it's pretty powerful. No, I think that's a good point, too, because like you said, there's so that, you know, um, when Don was telling us they had services Monday night. Tuesday night, right. Wednesday night, Thursday. I didn't. That was like Friday night was the only night they didn't have something. It seemed like almost every night of the week they had someone teaching, and it wasn't just Chuck either. He had Greg, right. he had right. you know Jeff Johnson, different guys teaching these Bible studies, and you know that was I think a great model for a lot of guys. You know to be able to get more people involved and to help communicate the gospel and all you know i mean it was a supply and demand there was such a demand to be around the church and grow that it 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 made possible the you know the supply they they'd supply the pulpit they hey if someone wants to come here and here let's let's open the doors yeah that's good uh you know and again you you came from rouse church now rouse a unique calvary guy even you know his the way he teach he he teaches through the scriptures, but he's got a very big personality. He's a very great. I mean, they had a movie on his life, Fury to Freedom, and he was, um, you know, he was just a an angry man. Uh, did not have a good home life. Um, wanted to fight all the time. Ended up having to go into the service or go to jail, so he went into the service, and that didn't stop him. He came out with a lot of anger, and um, then his conversion was dramatic. But all the anger he had now turned into just love. And he just loved people. And it was uh, the passion. Here, when I first came, he kind of like his, his working knowledge of like the scriptures, that is pronouncing things and getting names mixed up. He, he was horrendous with that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there with my college education, you know, critique him about sometimes, oh, I can't believe he said that word. Oh, I correct him sometimes. Hey, Paul, Raul, you said this, you meant this. And he goes, hey, praise the Lord, you know, and he'd kind of make fun of it. But... <laughs> What I gained was passion, and I needed that passion because otherwise I'd just been a, you know, a, a stuck-up theologian in my head. And I learned because you know while he was butchering the English language, you know, uh, or or talking on tithing, there'd still be thirty people come forward in the altar call, and I knew their lives were changed. So I'm like, God was saying, you see, if you think you can do this, if you think your education, or you think you got this. This is me working through a vessel, and I learned that it was about God. It's His work. I like that. You know, there's a good, um, I think, a healthy balance between taking what you've gotten from a pastor like that and taking the things that apply to you. But how do you, you know, you're not Raul, so you, when you went out, how okay, do you fit great. into your own mold? It's a great question. And by the way, he was continually improving because he was studying. I mean, he he would... He pour. He worked extra hard to to work on his messages, so he, I saw him change so much. But um, I gotta say, you know, I, you mimic those who you are modeling, and so mm-hmm. you know, I would teach like this. You know, it's interesting to me if you turn to chapter five and listen. You know, and hey, it's and I would and I'd say things 
that sounded like him. Because so my first year out in New Jersey, I'm trying to find what kind of teacher I am. So yeah. I'm kind of mimicking. Uh, and eventually you kind of come to your own style. You, you get comfortable with who you are because you don't imitate someone else. But in the beginning, it's kind of normal. Okay, that's good. I th- you know, I, like I said, I, th- I feel like sometimes, guys, you know, this is, I'm thinking of guys being sent out and they try to be the copy of that guy. And I know that what God has us is to be our you know best version of right. ourselves and to be faithful. Eventually and- you, you land there, you know, because it's not like I intentionally wanted to. It's kind of how I felt ministry was, you know, I, I, I was excited about his passion. So I'm kind of amping my passion up a little bit. And eventually the Lord just told me, just, just stay in my lane. <laughs> Find your lane and stay in it. Would you say you're more laid back than Ralden? Or? Yeah, I mean, look, I am more, I am passionate, but not to the degree where, you know, I, I, I overdo it. Like I was trying too hard, you know, without realizing it. And uh, when I just became comfortable, it's like, it didn't mean that it wasn't going to be passionate. It was just a different kind of passion. Yeah. You know, you gave us uh, kind of your take on podcasts last night during the first session when you said they're not a replacement for discipleship. And so I was right. like, I wanted to get your, your insight on that because I agree. Like, you know, the reason we do this podcast is not to, it's a form of discipleship, but yeah. it cannot replace, you know. It's you, a supplementary thing that you, look, we have the technology to use it. I will say that social media, you know, it's been said is the new town square. I don't like that moniker because if you make it the new town square, then you're replacing the town square. In other words, where you actually are engaging with real people. So, and even to the point where the metaverse is a thing, you know, people living their own worlds through avatars. And yeah. so there's a limitation to it. Um, I like it, but I just keep in mind that the model that Jesus set for us as a rule, this can be kind of a little frosting on the cake, but the cake should really be face-to-face encounters, challenging, uh, mentoring, uh, being mentored. And uh, that that's how Jesus did it. You know, he had the capacity to put a billion-watt speaker on the moon and shout all of his instructions to the earth. Uh, but he chose to work through individuals and those individuals reaching other individuals. And to me, that's the exciting thing about ministry is when I'm talking to one person or whether I'm talking to 10,000. It, it doesn't matter because that one person, you don't know, you're, you actually are speaking to 10,000 through that one. The impact you can have deeply. So you can be a mile wide and an inch deep. Um, and there's a place for that kind of thing because you're looking for information or even just exert. There could be someone really encouraged by this that could set them on a trajectory not to go start their own podcast, but to be involved in people's lives individually mm-hmm. because that's really what's going to change the world. Yeah, and I guess this podcast really is meant to just encourage people who are doing that thing. They're doing the discipleship. They're meeting the face-to-face and meeting, you know, and I don't think there's a better, better model for that because, you, you know, you, you, ministry happens with people. It happens meeting one-on-one. And you probably know this, you know, the, for me, the hardest part of being part of a big church is making it small. Yeah, we, we strive to make a big church feel small because we have discipleship we call them discipleship home groups we have something going on almost every night of the week um whether it's um you know things for kids for parents we have even one ministry i love because it's uh training children to care and it's not the children or the parents it's the whole family gathered and they work together on some project whether it's writing cards for missionaries or or doing some project together 
uh, doing something, you know, that's really like we had one time that was really kind of cool. The Chinese missionaries that were smuggling Bibles in, we set up a fake border with Chinese officials. And so all the little kids, my grandson was part of it. He had his <laughs> suitcase filled with Bibles. He's smuggling in and then he got caught and then they put him in a room and they yelled at him in Chinese. And it was really, it was giving them a sense of what it would be like to smuggle Bibles. So training children to care it's, it's the family serving together, which is really special because sometimes, you know, you have a men's thing. Well, now he's away from the family and the women yeah. are going here for and everybody's scattered. So this did something together. No, that's great. What are your home discipleship groups look like? Are you guys, I'm just curious, you know, for our own take, you know, do you guys facilitate those or you just have leaders, you know, you can trust and they kind of do what they want? We do have, well, we have leaders and we also have like a, a standard, like some guys will start something, a Bible study, and we're not going to monitor what everybody else is going to do. But with part of the home disciple, the discipleship home groups right now, they're finishing up the book of numbers through a workbook and doing some homework on it and learning and Leviticus and Numbers, we thought would scare people away, which we encouraged them, look, there's a lot of rich truths here. And they they were in it. You know, most most guys are gonna pick out some really cool subject, you know, for a home group, but you know what? Why why treat them like they can't learn something like this? And I'll tell you the feedback I got from Leviticus and Numbers from the home group people was pretty positive. And was that something you guys were doing in concert with your teachings, or is that just separate? Like, hey, you guys, we're going to have it, you guys go through these. We had done some things, but coordinating with the teaching public, because if I travel, it throws things off. Yeah. And it was so hard to really coordinate that and do it well, because it would be spotty. So this this was just better to have them go through On scriptures. Own, yeah. And of course, they're learning something in Leviticus and Numbers. There's some application when I'm going through Genesis or whatever. It all ties together. No, that's great. I think, yeah, a lot of people are intimidated by specifically Leviticus. And I feel like I've had, I did it, I did it for young adults a number of years back. And it was probably the, one of the best studies, you know, that I've ever done. Yeah. I mean, I remind people Leviticus is like the manual for the priests and the sacrifices. So imagine a car manual. You're not going to read a car maintenance manual for devotional purposes, you know, but you're going to refer to it when you need it. And that's what it was. So, you know, there's only so many times you can see the repeat of, you know, and they took the fatty lobe on the liver and, you know, to do this. And there's a lot of fatty lobes in in Leviticus. (laughs) So after a while you go, okay, but, you know, you sum up, you know, the main thrust of what it is. No, that's good. So we're almost done. Uh, Just a few, we call them lightning round questions. Uh, Who's your go-to pastor to listen to? Dead or alive? uh, My go-to pastor to listen to? um, you know, honestly, is Chuck, Chuck Smith. And um, he, uh, I can't believe how contemporary he is in many, many ways. Yeah. Um, I also, I, I love Joe Foch's teaching. It's excellent. And um, get a lot of that. And Don McClure is just a strange anomaly. I don't, he's kind of my guilty pleasure. I don't know why I like him, but he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's, he's crazy. You know, it's funny. But yeah, those, those would be, Go to, I guess. Okay, how about a good, a good recent read, a book that you've read recently? You would suggest for pastors to look, to read. Well, you know, one book that really hit me um, during the whole COVID stuff was "Live Not by Lies" by Matt uh, Rod Dreher, and uh, he goes into the whole dissidents in um, Eastern Europe, where there were some pastors that refused to live by the lie. 
the, you know, there is no God. The whole the whole narrative. If you didn't buy into the narrative in communism, you were uh, you were struck down. You you went to prison. You suffered. You lost your privileges. You didn't get. Uh, it's kind of like what's going on in the social credits right now in in uh, China. So they suffered. So with the guys that were willing to not live by the lie, they suffered. But eventually, because they're suffering, it inspired others to realize, yeah, this is a lie. So eventually, they were able to break away from communism in Eastern Europe. And so that was a powerful thing. And I saw the same thing happening in the pandemic, honestly. Yeah. This was a overreach of government control meant to make everybody follow a narrative. And if you didn't, you were... You were shouted down, mocked, ridiculed. Fined by the government. Fined. Yeah. You know, your the virtue signal people would make you feel like you're killing people. It was very sophisticated. And um, I did not, because of that book, it really inspired me. I knew it was a baloney, but I just, I didn't see how do you respond to this. So I just decided I'm going to live the truth. So we opened up. And we didn't, I didn't make it a point to go poke the governor in the eye. <laughs> I just simply just didn't listen to him. You know, just I, I know who I am. I'm a shepherd of a flock. They're gonna, they're they're dying in the hospitals. They won't let us visit. They're, um, you know, you you have suicide now. You got depression. People were messed up. Kids. So we opened our school. We opened the church, and we ministered. Did you guys get a lot of flack for that? Well, I lost a few leaders. I lost a number. You know, got got some. You know, people that were. Killing us on social media, we're, we're, we're super spreaders, we're this or that. The reality is we had no more difference than what was out there, yeah. even with all of our opening up. And when something would go through the school, it would just it would be like a big nothing. It was like a cold and it was gone, and yeah. now all those kids are immune. How about from like the government? Did you guys get fines or anything like that? Or No, the odd thing is they didn't touch us. New yeah. Jersey something interesting. The, the, the books, the laws in the books for New Jersey is... You know, government pretty much stays away. They went after this guy that was running a gym, I mean, in New Jersey. He was the gym owner from, I mean, he was national news. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. But uh, they didn't bother us. And we were opening our school. We were. We did lose, that's right, what, somebody ratted on us. One of the parents who didn't like us opening, you know, they found it that it was incumbent upon them to go tell on us. So they, they ratted on us and, and the uh, resources we got for the special needs kids they said, well, you're not following the rules, you know, set by blah, blah, blah. So we're not going to fund you in this regard. So we lost, it was 30, 40 grand, you know, a year. And for I the said, special needs kids. Yeah, oh, for the special needs kids. So, fantastic. So, yeah. <laughs> so we, we, we basically funded it to keep it going. We didn't stop it. Yeah. It just cost us. And you know what? It was worth keep it. your money. We're going to do what the Lord's called us to do. Love that. All right, last one is a piece of advice you give to someone in full-time ministry. If you had to give them just a, a word of knowledge, some wisdom. You know, look, Paul said to Timothy, the things you learn from me, you know, follow. You, you've got to have a really good godly mentor, and I believe it's very helpful because I can't tell you how many times I would be stumped with something or struggling with something. I have someone I could call to that knew more than me. And then then he says, and continue in the word. and. Honestly, if you are trying to come up with some clever sermons to communicate to your generation, knock it off. Expound the scriptures. You can make it relatable to your generation, but don't, don't go so far that you have to tweak everything to, to try to fit that culture. Rather, I, I believe being an ambassador, you have to be faithful to know the language from your country 
And then you also need to know the language of the people you're speaking to. So heavenly language, know the word of God, and then think about how you can reach your culture. But the word of God is essential. In fact, um, so essential, this came out in one of the training for ambassadors. I forget which one of the Secretary of State's was, but he'd have all the new ambassadors come in and he had this big globe in his office. And he'd say to the, the new ambassador, go, go show me your country, point, point out your country. And of course, the ambassador would go over there and he'd point out Uganda or wherever he was going. He goes, mm-hmm. no, that is not your country. This is your country. And he put their finger on the United States. Don't forget who you are. And I think the two big problems is that you have some pastors that are stuck in the heavenly language, but they're still speaking in you know, old King James language and they're not relating with people. So they're not making a connection. But then the other danger is some people know the culture so much, but they're not grounded in their own language. Kind of a pendulum swing. You've got to have, yeah. exactly, you've got to have that foundation, that, that both. I love it. Thanks, Lloyd. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, coming out all the way from New Jersey. And I Listen, love what guys... I don't understand what you guys talking about. It's not that far. Come on. <laughs> Are you looking at me? I know you're not looking at me. <laughs> the New it. Jersey attitude. I love it. I appreciate what God's doing there. And uh, just pray God continue to bless your ministry, man. Thanks, bro. Thank you, Zach. God bless you. It's great, great to be here. Thanks, man. The EQ Podcast is here as a resource for our listeners. Check us out at eqministry.com. On our website, you'll find a variety of helpful tools, including past ministry conferences and a contact form to seek out help or counsel from seasoned Calvary pastors who want to encourage you in your serving or answer your ministry-related questions. Until next time, God bless.